tonight, I'd like to uh, reflect on the um, experience of suffering and the way beyond suffering. It's, uh, in, in terms of how um, the Buddha talked about this very uh, shared uh, human um, experience that we that we have that we enter when we come into life, experience of limitation, pain, suffering, stress, the mystery of it in a way, and the all pervasiveness of it, and how much of our energy and time is spent in trying to avoid uh, that which is difficult, that which is hard to bear. And on a retreat like this, and a day like this, without much distraction, we've probably all had uh, a lot of opportunity to come into relationship with this aspect of our uh, humanity. It's uh, very different to engage the experience of suffering consciously with the view to alleviating and transforming and going beyond the limitations and the, the pain that it can generate in our lives. And then, or, or it's different to, to engage that consciously than unconsciously suffering away and just being caught in our reactions. So in this practice, we're, we're becoming more conscious, more aware. With, with increased awareness, increased mindfulness, there's more choice in how we respond. We're not just driven and habitual in our reactions. So our, our practice has been to increase our awareness, to begin to gather back the experience of suffering and meet it rather than avoid it or repress it or project it out or even project it inwardly on the self, but to steady this steadying that we've doing, we've been uh, cultivating, steadying of attentiveness, mindfulness gaining strength so we can actually apprehend, contemplate this everyday experience. It's said at the, uh, in, in the Buddha's early life that he was, he grew up in a situation where he was uh, removed from impingement of uh, that which was uh, painful or difficult or unpleasant, surrounded by ease and comfort, wealth, so the story goes. And anything that became uh, problematic or discomforting, it would be uh, ferried away, hidden from his view. This was all to uh, avoid the prediction at his birth that uh, he could possibly, rather than becoming uh, a monarch of some type or, or, or to take on the mantle of his father, that he might actually become uh, a wandering saint, a spiritual teacher, which uh, wasn't something that his father wanted to have happen would prefer for him to take on the family business, carry on in the family way. So, so there was this attempt to avoid anything that could trigger discontent in the Buddha, to make him inquire more deeply into the nature of reality and the nature of human life. Is this all there is? We just come here, we, we try and get what we want and stay as comfortable as we can and we won't think about what happens. 
might think about uncomfortable things that uh, unnerve us, our impermanence, impermanence of our loved ones. And in in many ways, this is a, a metaphor for our contemporary life that we've actually. Sometimes we can look at the life of the Buddha and it can feel very removed or it's just a sort of an archetypal story in a way. <clears throat> Whether it's exactly, was exactly like that, it's, it's, it's a little hard to know, but we can look at it as a, as a metaphor, as an archetypal story for our own journey. It speaks to us. And, you know, it can seem very... Read about the early life of the Buddha, it seems, it seems an impossible occurrence that he lived until he was 27 or 29, I think, uh, without really encountering anything that was discomforting to him. But if you think of it in terms of our contemporary society and how much energy, through the power that we have, the power that we have gained as human beings to manipulate and control our environment for a for pleasing outcome, Great expense <laughs> of uh, of our environment, actually, and, or many, and many other things. But how how we're so driven to 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 constantly find a more comfortable abiding? It's not too much of a stretch of an imagination to realize how much denial can operate to keep us removed from the experience of anything that might threaten our sense of power and continuity and control. In the same way that, uh, in the same way this was the situation for the Buddha, and then until one day he got curious what was outside the walls of his comfort zone, what was happening everywhere else in the world. What's going on outside of the channels on TV where we're fed these ideal soap operas, <laughs> other places maybe in the world, or even down the road, <laughs> or even in our own home. So it said one day he, he jumped over the, the wall and decided to have a, he didn't actually jump over the wall, he actually asked his charioteer to take him out for a drive, his chauffeur, <laughs> take him around town, have a look. And, uh, and in, in his uh, wandering around, he, he came across what's called the, the four heavenly messengers. They weren't the kind of heavenly messengers or heavenly angels that we usually associate with, uh, with, with the whole idea of something coming down from the heavens. It were, it were, they were very disturbing signs. Uh, someone that was really wretched, sick, weak, covered in sores, throwing up. It's a shock to, to see someone in that state because he, he had never really associated that possibility with himself. And then someone that was really, really decrepit, really old, needed a walking stick, could hardly move, not beautiful anymore. <laughs> not radiant anymore, not conducive to lust. <laughs> yeah, so then that was shocking. And then, and then he saw a corpse, cold, dead, all life force gone like, a, like an empty log. And uh, it was, it was, the shock was just deepening. So, and uh, he, he, he began to reflect, you know, can this happen to me? And again, we can think, you know, was he naive or had he never come across these things? But there was something about the way that he was open in the moment that the, the reality of impermanence penetrated into his heart, really, really went deeply. And it said at that moment, he said, the vanity of youth, the vanity of his own sense of infallibility left him. We can, we can be seduced into that kind of vanity through our whole life, actually. And we, as I said, we go to great lengths to, 
remove ourselves from the, the power and the inevitability of our impermanence. And then the fourth messenger was a, was a sadhu, a wandering mendicant, someone that was peaceful, someone that represented, it's a metaphor for another way, for a, for a path, for a, some kind of deeper inquiry, for a quest, the quest that we have as human beings. And his quest became, is there anything that transcends death? Is there anything that transcends impermanence? And this became his deep burning inquiry. Hopefully it it is ours too, if we, we get lulled to sleep a lot. But we have this short time and we have the energy that we have to inquire. And this inquiry became so fierce that everything around him that was so beautiful and so seductive and so alluring and so enchanting just fell away. He, he, could, he, he, he couldn't see it in that light anymore. And this, this, this happens to us, doesn't it? When something awakens or we, we get jarred or, or some inner stirring or some awakening or we really see through the, the veneer of the, uh, what we're sold as happiness and constitutes a successful life. It somehow feels empty or meaningless. And, you know, we can feel this feeling in, in, in uh, Pali, they call it nibida. In, in Thailand, Ajahn Chah used to say, Bua Mai. Sounds like you're going to throw up, <laughs> which means, have you had enough? Has he, is he, you know, it's a sort of weariness. It's called a, a, a world weariness, a dispassion arose in the heart of the Buddha. Nothing would really do it for him. Nothing could charm him. Nothing could seduce him. Just this sense of weariness. And what that, that tends to happen in... In our culture, it's, it's uh, rather than maybe a, 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 a kind of a maturing, a necessary maturing in our way of awakening. Not an easy place to get to, but socially often it's not really something that's encouraged. It's like, well, you know, go shopping or <laughs> yeah, get, go do something, you know, to distract yourself and get happy again. But, you know, often when you find yourself on a retreat like this, it's because you've had that kind of experience of of, of unsatisfactoriness. It's it's an initiation, if you like, a necessary initiation of consciousness to begin a journey of depth, of, of encountering and entering reality. And so it said then the Buddha did actually at that point jump over the wall and left his comfort zone. He had to, he, he couldn't, it wasn't, there was no easy way to leave, actually. <laughs> Sometimes there isn't. He just, yeah, he had to actually escape in the middle of the night when no one was around. And, uh, and took off all the adornments and all the things associated with his life before and started his quest. And of course, as was the way, what would have been on offer in that time, he began to seek out the teachers, the sages, the sadhus, the practitioners, and, and hung out with them. And he was, he was very adept and learned all the practices and became very skilled uh, in, in what was on offer at that time, which were these very, very um, refined states of consciousness, meditation that would take one to very subtle realms, very uh, realms of where there is no sensory impingement, no movement, no perception even. Very blissful, very subtle, but what he began to realize that they were also impermanent, which is also happens for us, isn't it? We, we come on retreat, we might not actually be quite the Olympic meditator of the Buddha to be, to go into these very refined, subtle realms where you can sit immobile for days on end. But we also attempt that. We want, to, we want to still everything. We want everything to be quiet, and then we want to hold it just like that. And then something disturbs us and we, and we feel our, it breaks and we can feel a sense of frustration. And this is, in a way, happened for the Buddha. He kept sort of coming down. The body had its demands. 
the state would, would, would disappear. He, he realized even refined states of consciousness became, were impermanent. They were still a state. And so he began to feel, well, maybe the problem's this body. You know, the world of form, it's distracting me. It's getting in the way. And, uh, you know, the desires, the, the bodily desires, feelings, sort of these uncomfortable longings that would come up, maybe for company or intimacy or closeness, sexuality, desires of various sorts or having to even eat all became problematic. It was bringing him down. <laughs> so then he had a, a, a different kind of plan, which was also an offer at that time, which, was, which, which was, was a sort of extreme asceticism. If I just conquer and overcome my body and all its needs and all of these uncomfortable feelings and use a, an Olympic force of will to do it, and then that should, I should break free from this limited mortal realm and catapult myself into some transcendent eternal space. And again, maybe most of us don't use, have that kind of power of will, but we, we, we have attempts at stuff like that. <laughs> Certainly, in a, you know, when I was training in a monastery, you know, we would all kind of have goes at fasting and sitting up all night and you know, trying to conquer the way of the warrior, the warrior practice. Just conquer it all. Don't think. Don't feel. And, and the Buddha, being who, who he was, was pretty determined. So he took it to a very extreme degree and to the point where it said in the suttas that if he, if he touched his tummy, he would feel his backbone, he got so thin, or if he touched his hair, scratched his head, his hair would fall out. Or if he went to urinate, he would just fall in a heap. He had no more strength. He, he, he couldn't actually, he was actually on the edge of dying. You know, he took it to that extreme. Such, in a way, almost hatred for the body. He'd rather die. And uh, <clears throat> at a certain point, he began to feel, maybe this isn't working. <laughs> Might there be another way, as it says in the sutta. You know, try the, the, the way of extreme pleasure and being lost in the, the realms of the delighting in the senses. He tried the way of catapulting himself beyond sensory experience, refined states of consciousness. He tried to crush the needs of the body. And yet he still found himself bound, constricted, suffering, unliberated. So at that point, he'd sort of ran the course of everything that was on offer in the society, in the, in the, in the sort of spiritual marketplace at the time. And he, he, he began to realize that, you know, he, he was on his own, actually. And at the same at the same moment, two two interesting things happened. The first thing that happened, I'm not quite sure what order exactly, but as it's recorded in the story, is that he had a memory. He had a memory of when he was a child, and he remembered very innocently and without any agenda, without any premeditation. He remembered withdrawing from a festival that was happening in his home village just sitting quietly by himself and just being sitting there and then just being interested in the breath and following the breath as we've been doing. And then he he did that, he began to feel a sense of contentment and pleasure. And then he remembered that that was a pleasure, a simple meditation that was skillful. It wasn't the pleasure of maybe being lost and driven by the need to find our completion through the sensory experience. It was just a very simple, pleasing abiding. And he began to feel maybe this would be the beginning of a pathway he could, he could, uh, he could sort of explore. But he didn't have a lot of energy. And, uh, and at that point, another, another incident happened. Whether the, 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 the angels helped it happen or the devas helped bring it about or, or whatever, but there was a, the appearance of a young maiden a very sort of 
lovely, compassionate woman came up to the Buddha and, and realized, you know, this guy's in trouble. <laughs> you know, he's, he's emaciated. He, he's obviously, a, you know, quite a heroic type of person. Um, maybe I can help him by offering him some nourishment. So I said that the Buddha, that the, 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 her name was Sujata. And so she offered the Buddha a bowl of milk rice, which he accepted. Before that, he was eating like one grain a day and even tried to stop breathing because it was too indulgent. (laughs) And so at that point, he accepted the milk rice. And at that point, his five ascetics that he'd been practicing with looked at him in disgust. He's gone soft. He's accepted something. And not only is he eating, but he's accepted it from a woman, <laughs> a young, beautiful maiden, you know, he's slipping badly, you know, he's going down, he's lost the plot. And so they abandoned him. It says, it says in the suttas he was abandoned. He was, at, and then at that point, totally alone. So I'd like to th- think of that moment. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, a sim- it's, a, it's a metaphor again, it's a symbol, it's an archetype. For the Buddha at that point, in a way, he shifted. If you looked at it slightly more in union terms, perhaps he shifted from the warrior style to the to the lover, to the to the opening to accept nourishment, to the opening to accept form. The woman re- represented the relationship with form, embodiment, no longer detesting incarnation but the, the moment when there's a shift of relationship to welcome, to open, to receive, and to realize that's actually was absolutely necessary for the next step of his journey, to soften. So with that nourishment, with that new perspective, with that memory of something innocent, open, the mind of a child almost, he began his quest. And it said then he sat at Budgaya. And uh, <clears throat> during the, the night of his uh, awakening, the forces of Mara aligned against him, all the things that were there to seduce and tempt and, and, and bring up his longing for what he'd left behind. It's kind of the, everything that we face every day here on retreat all the voices, all the haunting things that undermine and sabotage. You can't do it, you know. You're a hopeless case. It's too difficult. And he just sat there. I know you, Mara. He didn't try and kill Mara, kill that which was undermining his confidence. He just simply say, I know you. and I know these voices. They don't have to delude me. They don't delude me. And then as he sat through the night, it said that with his renewed strength, with his new openness, with his inquiring mind, with all the power of his samadhi, he actually began to inquire into this fundamental question of his quest. What is it that transcends death? What is it that transcends the impermanent? And through the night, he had different insights that unfolded. He understood, he saw, as it said and recorded, how many <clears throat> births he'd been through, how many deaths he'd been through, how many births and deaths others go through, all the different forms, all the different appearances, all the different shapes, all the different storylines, how endless and how the interconnectedness of everything, the endlessness of the sea of birth and death. And he could see it very, very clearly. And as he continued with his insight, what arose for him was the, the complete relinquishment of identification with the, 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 uh, the, what we've been contemplating today. With the, with, the, with the khandhas, with the, or the asavas, with, the, with that which, which the momentum of, of desire and the momentum of the mind as it runs out looking for, uh, looking for a home in the, in the world of the impermanent, looking for a home in the sensory experience, looking for a home in the world of thoughts, looking for an identity, 
this endless force, what's called becoming, that he broke, was able to completely release himself. And so that the mind, the primordial nature of mind, that doesn't usually recognize his own nature, understands its own nature, was recognized and realized. And in that recognition, there was the liberation, the mind, the heart, what we've been calling mind or heart, the jitta, the heart was liberated. Liberated from the sense of time, liberated from the sense of birth, getting somewhere, something new, liberated from, therefore, the experience of death and loss. The unshakable liberation of heart was realized by the Buddha. This is what he said on that night when he experienced the taste of that liberation, the taste of peace that it brought about. Freed and released am I. From this traveling through the rounds of countless births, Seeking but not finding the house builder, I traveled on. Oh, painful is birth ever and again. House builder, you have been seen. You shall not build the house again. Your rafters have been broken down and your ridgepole is demolished. My mind has attained the unformed nibbana and reached the end of every kind of craving. It said that after his <clears throat> realization that Buddha sat for, for many weeks just enjoying the pleasure of this peace, this cooling, Nibbana, the, the cooling of the fever of desire, of having to get anywhere else, of becoming something, of the struggle. It was very, very blissful. So he just spent one whole week just gazing at the tree that had protected him with utter devotion. This beautiful relationship that the Buddha then took on through his whole of his life with the natural world around him, the forest that he walked through, the trees that he sat under, where he taught. His utter devotion to the natural world. And he said that he called the, the very earth herself to witness to his awakening. There's this embracing of the world, of the, of the earth, nature. But there was a reluctance. There was a reluctance. It was so hard to, to articulate what he had understood, to bring it into language. So there was a reluctance to teach. Maybe he thought, I'll just go off to the Himalayas and hang out, you know, like other yogis other awakened beings, send good vibrations. At that point, it said that all the devas that were looking down at the Buddha's awakening thought, he's, he's, he's not going he's, he's to teach, we've got we've to do something, we've got to do something. We've got <laughs> and so they sent down Brahma Sahampati, a great radiant being that came down. This is a metaphor, really. Brahma Sahampati comes from the Brahma realm, the realm of form, the subtle form, the realm of creation, and entreated the Buddha, please, there are those that will have a little dust in their eye and for not understand, if you don't teach through not really expounding the Dharma, they won't understand the way to the deathless. So please, for their sake, go forth and teach. Bring into creation from the formless. It's a hard thing to do, because, you know, Nibbana is formless, it's, it's, knowledge, it's beyond language, it's uh, uh, beyond designation, beyond description, to try and point to that which can't be really grasped. No wonder he was reluctant. Anyone in their right mind would be reluctant <laughs> to try and speak. So he said that out of the, the Brahma Sahampati, courage, compassion, out of compassion, please go forth and expound the Dharma. And so eventually the Buddha then started to, to consider how, how could he do this and to whom could he do this. 
And it said at that moment, someone came by and saw how radiant he was and just said, wow, you know, you're pretty amazing. Who are you? What are you about? And the Buddha said, I am the all-world transcender. I am the enlightened one. I'm the awakened one. No one has understood uh, in any way beyond what I understand. Therefore, I have no teacher. I'm fully awake, fully enlightened. The person went, oh, that's nice. (laughs) And it said he walked on, bemused. (laughs) So that's called the the, the Buddha's first failed Dharma talk. (laughs) It it was an utterance of absolute truth. It's who we are when we're not caught up in our self-structure. It's the utterance of awakening. But the person couldn't really get a lot from it. Could maybe believe him, it maybe could could not believe him, maybe could adore him, make him a guru, but wouldn't necessarily woken up themselves. So then the Buddha felt, well, there must be another way to try and communicate. I, I always liked that because there's always this feeling when you, when you look through the story of the Buddha and his 41 years of teaching and communicating, you always find he's constantly trying to figure out how you do it how to respond and, and, and honing it and shifting it. and adapt, you know, So there's this dynamic aspect of the, of the expression of truth, which is, a, which is, again, a metaphor for us. It's not only the Buddha. We also are in, always in that dynamic. How do we bring forth the Dharma, our truth? So it's said that he, he walked from... You know, in this state of peace, emancipation, and and with his divine eye, he he realized that his five fellow ascetics could be the first people that maybe could understand what he wanted to communicate. And as he as he uh, walked from Budgaya to Varanasi, it's a long walk; would have taken a while. Perhaps he reformulated how to. I mean, this is who knows exactly if this is what happened. So. But as it's recorded, he reformulated how to actually deliver a teaching that could bring living beings to awakening. And when he approached his five friends, they looked at him and said, oh, there's the one that slacked off, that ate the milk rice, that accepted the gift from the woman. (laughs) Let's not greet him, let's not honor him. But he was so radiant, he had such peace that it was impossible not to. So they made a seat and he sat down and then he gave this teaching on the Four Noble Truths, the Dhamma Chaka Sutta, the turning of the Dharma wheels, called the first turning of the wheel of the Dharma, which we're still benefiting from here and now, all these thousands of years later in this culture, in this time, in this space, from this teaching that the Buddha set in motion. He sat down and he he, he talked uh, about the experience of suffering. He didn't start from the place of enlightenment. He said, there is this experience of dukkha. He framed it in a way that was familiar for what would have been a template of their time, the, the, the template of the uh, four aspects of Ayurvedic medicine, the, the naming of the disease, the cause of the disease. The, 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 the disease can be cured in the remedy. The, 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 the disease is this experience of dukkha, what he called dukkha, what's called dukkha. It's this feeling of suffering. And this dukkha is, is sometimes <clears throat> articulated in, in different ways. There is, there is what's called dukkha dukkha, <laughs> which just means the pain of... of compounded, being compounded phenomena, coming into incarnation, we're just going to, even if there's enlightenment, even if there's awakening, there's going to be some dukkha that we will feel, the pain in the back or, or the aging process or the body getting sick. It's not like the end of suffering is that somehow we magically never feel pain anymore, which is somehow how we almost naively and childishly think about it. In fact, you know, if you look at the Buddha's life, it was just one, in many ways, huge challenges, lots of struggles. And he talked about when his two great disciples died. 
he said it was like two great trees had fallen. You know, this very powerful image of how, how he felt a sadness at the loss of loved ones. It wasn't that he didn't feel that. You know, so this is a, there's dukkha, there's, there's sufferings that we will feel, or there are pains that we will feel just because we have incarnated. It goes along with the package. Uh, pain of what we inherit through our family line, from, from our cultural line, from our ancestors, from the conditioning. You know, some of these pains, you, you can, you can, uh, you know, one can be with residue of them for a whole life. You know, it needs a lot of, a lot of care, a lot of consideration, a lot of gentleness, a lot of patience. Or we might feel pain that's not necessarily about us. So we, we are in an environment where there is a lot of suffering and we feel it. Or we might feel the pain nowadays of the earth. As she's, you know, so much is dying. So many species, so many things that, that, you know, that we are relied upon is no longer unre- is unreliable. It's so uncertain and there's a pain in that. There's a poignancy, there's a grief. It's not, in a way, personal, but we feel it. We should feel it, actually. So these are the kind of pains that we, we, we can feel, that we sit here and they come up and we, and we feel. Sometimes it can be very, very intense. But that's different than the suffering that the Buddha was talking about, what, what, what we can really totally alleviate, the suffering that we can alleviate. It's not so much the pains that we might experience, which we can work with, which we can endure, that we can relate to more consciously, that we can actually use as the seed for uh, insight and compassion and, and uh, informed response. But it's the pain, the suffering that the Buddha talked about comes from the ignorance of the mind. Not really understanding, the mind not understanding its true nature and mistaking itself with that which moves, that which is impermanent, that which is part of the five khandhas that we've been contemplating today. This is the, the ignoring the nature of reality. So when that is operating in the mind, then we are bound to suffer. Because we're always started to open into the second noble truth when we're when we're suffering, when we're struggling. Usually, it comes the the second noble truth is said that suffering arises from a cause. It arises because of desire. It arises because of. Ajahn Chah would say very simply, we we want what's not here, and we don't want what's here. <laughs> We always want it to be different somehow. We don't want the painful knee. We don't want the restless mind. When it's night, we want it to be morning. When it's morning, we want it to be night. When we're alone, we want to be with others. When we're with others, we want to be alone. When it's hot, we want it to be cool. When it's cool, we want it to be hot. You know, it's kind of endless. (laughs) You know, so we're always wanting something else and we're always resisting what's here. You're always in a subtle state of resistance, <laughs> which really comes up very intensely when we, when we practice. Yeah. It's very, very hard to just really, really accept, like the Buddha accepting that milk rice, accepting the world of form. It's really hard just to accept how it is, what we're with. In the second noble truth, the encouragement is to, in, in suffering, the practice is to, rather than when there's suffering in the mind, usually we, 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 we do everything we can to avoid feeling it. You know, we, we push away from it. We, we distract ourselves. We, we repress it, we, we, we blame, it's, uh, I'm feeling like this because of you or because of the weather or because of someone else, or we, we project it onto the self. If we don't project it onto the world, we project it onto the self. There's something wrong with me. We take it very personally. 
I'm, I'm bad somehow because I feel this. Actually, there's nothing wrong with us. <laughs> there's nothing wrong. I, I, I remember once a, a lovely story that uh, spiritual teacher Ramdas told when he went to see his, his um, guru named Karoli Baba in India. And he went up to him full of despair one day and says, I'm such a hopeless case. I can't, I, I'm full of lust. I'm full of greed. I'm full of aversion. I'll never be spiritual. I'll never get there. I'm, it's just like I've got my mind completely caught up in anxiety. It's hopeless. It's hopeless. I'm hopeless. I'm terrible. Kind of stuff that we can go through our minds. And, and then Crawley Baba just walked around him, kept walking around, looking at him really like inspecting every bit of him and looking around, walked around, walked around. He said, I don't see anything wrong here. (laughs) We identify and and create a suffering self. So in the in the second in the in the you know the first noble truth encouragement is just to to contemplate, to rather than avoid, to begin to with this power of attentiveness, power of mindfulness, power of awareness, to to contemplate this this experience of suffering, which becomes a doorway. As we stay steady, we can start to apprehend and notice what is generate where's it being generated from. One can actually experience pain but not suffer. One can experience the flow of the khandhas, the play of the mind, and not get into a state of constriction or suffering. Things will still move. Life will still unfold. It's not that everything's going to stop. But the mind, there's no identification. Not bound by time. Not bound by the fever of becoming. So in moments we might see that actually suffering isn't happening to us. We're generating it. We're doing it. <laughs> or the ignorance of the mind is doing it. And we can, can actually recognize that and look, what is it in this moment? If I'm suffering or struggling, what is it that I'm wanting and not wanting? Maybe I want to go to bed. Maybe I want the retreat to end. Maybe I don't want the retreat to end. <laughs> and it's so seductive. Yeah. It's this, this energy of, of, of that keeps shifting us. So really encourage you as we, as we move on into the retreat to really contemplate those energies. Yeah. I want to get to the meal. We get to the meal, I want to go for my nap. So when we start to actually recognize that which can know wanting and not wanting isn't wanting and not wanting, it is the knowing, the natural state of knowing and awareness. And and the second noble truth of practice is to let go, let be, accept, open, allow, be very, very present with just how it is. And in those moments of really releasing out of that agitation reactivity there's a, the capacity or the entering or the tasting of the heart or the mind the jitta in its natural state of awareness presence immovability suchness And this is uh, <clears throat> this third noble truth is uh, encouragement is to it's not in a, is is to recognize the heart and the mind. It's not suffering. That's just present. It's not trying to get anywhere. It's not trying to push anything away. Just simply aware to be able to recognize that. But um, the Thai meditation master said of this uh, recognition, he said when dukkha, that agitation, is stilled, completely stopped, nothing remains, 
All that remains entirely is pure awareness. Or all that entirely remains is pure awareness. It is the purity of the mind, the innate purity of the heart, the purity of the citta, natural nature. If you want, you can call it nibbana. But that would just be another name. This recognition, this uh, <coughs> practice that we're doing, we, we're recognizing, we're, we're noting, we're mindful of the activity of the mind, and we become, little by little, we start to awaken and recognize the ground of the mind, the awareness, the ever-present. It's not an awareness that is dead. It's an awareness that has a dynamic aspect, an intelligence, a knowingness. Sometimes it's called... Um, the prajna, prajna paramita, prajna, which is a word that means uh, wisdom, but it has an interesting meaning. It is, it is another way of talking about the mind in its natural state, pure, unadulterated, aware knowingness. It means one of the the, uh, the suffix or the root of this word has the meaning of actually nya is, is gnosis or knowledge, but it actually means before knowledge. It is that which is even before the things we know. <laughs> it's not about having knowledge about stuff. Actually, it's the opposite. It's about letting go of the knowledge we have about stuff. In its essence, you could really say it's entering the depth of unknowing or the depth of the mystery because the reality is when we taste and recognize the mind in its natural state, we enter a profound mystery because we can't designate a name or a structure. We can't grasp it. We can't even know it as an object and put it out there that we can, you know hold up somehow. We rest in it. We are it. We taste it. We can't be anything else. Sometimes this prajna, paramita, is also known as, uh, as a feminine aspect. Sometimes it's called the, the, the womb of the Buddhas. This primordial aware nature that gives birth to the manifestation of a Buddha, the manifestation of teachings, the manifestation of wisdom. In itself, it's formless. The Dharma, Dharma nature. Dharma nature cannot be described, words fall short before it. However, it can be realized can be recognized as our true abiding, can be rested in, can be trusted. We don't trust it because we, we trust the things that, that we, we think about or that we can, we can know through our senses. So the fourth noble truth is the, is the path that helps deepen us into this trust, into this awakening helps bring us back home, helps the mind that's been running out into the realms of samsara, into the 10,000 things. It gathers back, as Kirisara talked 
about last night, the great reversal when the mind gets burnt enough in suffering, when it's tasted enough and become weary, begins the journey home to its root, to its ground, to its true nature. And the most expedient, not the most, but as the Buddha called the way to the one or the direct way, the heart of the path activity that helps bring about this great reversal, helps us to recognize the true nature of heart, is this activity of mindfulness, awareness, presence. So little by little, we taste, we have moments of tasting, peace, presence, awareness. And then we have moments when we get lost. But little by little, as, as, the, as we trust and deepen into the path activity of mindfulness, awareness, attentiveness, little by little, the fruition of the path brings us to more maturing and integration, awakening. Tonight, <clears throat> um, today was um, International Women's Day, so I'd like to dedicate this talk to, in uh, memory of the gift of Sujata, to remind us to welcome our bodies, welcome our incarnations as the doorway uh, into the most profound aspect of the feminine, the unformed mystery from which all things emerge and dissolve back into. May we find our rest, may we find our true home, may we recognize in the same way that the Buddha illuminated for us in his path and his teaching, may we recognize the taste of peace, may it mature for us into full, unshakable awakening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.